Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Mark Rasso, a filmmaker whose first feature, Copenhagen, told a delicate, complicated love story about two people making a deeper connection than either of them had bargained for. His new film, Kodachrome, stars Jason Sudeikis, Ed Harris, and Elizabeth Olsen as three people trapped together on a road trip of discovery and emotions and stuff. It opens theatrically in the U.S. and drops on Netflix worldwide this Friday, April 20th, and it's pretty good. Mark chose the talented Mr. Ripley, Anthony Minghella's exquisitely calibrated adaptation of the 1955 novel by Patricia Highsmith, previously adapted by René Clément in 1960 as Purple Noon, about an opportunistic sociopath who contrives to live a life of privilege and finds himself unwilling to give it up. Fresh off the triumph of the English patient, Mengele assembled a fantastic cast of 1999's brightest young things, Matt Damon, Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kate Blanchett, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and set them against one another against the gorgeous backdrop of the Mediterranean. It's a seductive film with a cold, cold heart, which is entirely the point. This is someone else's movie. When you put forth this... Uh this idea, this, which is great, what you're doing, it's, <laughs> it's you know, you're starting with... <laughs> Endless possibilities. Yes, yeah. exactly. It's, it's slowly narrowing down. I think yeah. this will be like 106... I think this is episode 169. So we're, we're ruling <laughs> yeah, stuff out. As there we're... was a couple of things on there that oh, yeah. I loved. Uh, you know, I think... I know Children of Men was on there. Yeah. You've done that. And uh, Fight Club, I think. Yep. Yeah, Jim yeah. Gray did Fight Club. Eric Johnson did Children of Men 2. Two really good episodes, actually. Yeah, so, you know, those stuff. And... So Talented Mr. Ripley, for me, it was more because I, I wanted to explore why I uh, enjoyed the film so much. Sure. And I thought, it's kind of this film that, you know, no, it's not a film that people really talk about. It's it's not really probably on anyone's top, like, top lists of greatest films or favorite films on all time. I don't even think it's on my top 20, but it is a film that I've seen many times, and every time I enjoy it a lot. And I thought, what a better way to try to discover why than to, to discuss it and and I think it it's worth seeing and if people haven't seen it hopefully this will bring it to them I mean yeah that is absolutely the goal of the show to to pull people towards things you know mm-hmm. and to advocate for for films and um, yeah I, I, I'm really glad you picked this one because it was one that I mean I have it it's on the shelf mm-hmm. it's it's yeah as you say it's not a top favorite but it never really goes away mm-hmm. either um Minghella's stuff is so, so specific and so, you know, it's beautiful and compelling and alluring. And, and in this case, that's what the movie is about. It's about being drawn into something that you can't flee, yeah. interact with. So somehow this movie is at a remove in a weird way among his filmography. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, so many of his movies are complex in that way. For sure. I mean, yeah, for me, the thing is the... You know, the sympathy it, it it and other movies have done this, but it it drew us to the sympathetic sociopath basically. Yeah, yeah very much before kind of Tony Soprano or Walter White in television. You know, I'm going into television, but other movies of other shows and movies have done it much later, and you know, with a lot more time to explore this. But you know, we we care about this guy, and he's you know a bunch of things. Yeah. 
Um, he's complex, obviously, but he's a he's a murderer. He kills three people in the movie, and you know, we we're, we're in a way pulling for him. And and it's just this. And even Jude Law's character is kind of like this despicable person who you just kind of he's so you know cool. <laughs> you 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 just love watching him. He's like you know he. he uh, there's a line in the film. It's like when the, when he's. Um, Something like when he's focused on you, it feels like you're the only person, you know, or the sun's shining on you, you're the only person in the world. Yeah. And you get that sense watching him. Right? So so I just thought, uh, I thought, you know, it's it's entirely well, it's well acted all, all the way through. Some great supporting performances from um, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman and Kate Blanchett. And I just thought it was something worth exploring and, and definitely talking about. Yeah, I it's... You know, it's it's a film that I don't revisit often enough, I mm-hmm. guess, because I carry it so vividly in my head. I don't feel like I need to, but it's one of those movies that slips away really quickly too. Yeah. It wasn't until I took another look at it that I realized just, you know, how seductive the whole thing is. The world that we're presented with is glistening, and the you know, I, the first time I saw it, I thought it was really over to, over the top with the sun gl- mm-hmm. glancing off the water and everything else, but then of course the whole point of it is that we have to be in Ripley's head yeah. and want what he wants, which is why we sympathize with him in the first place, even Absolutely. though he's not a person who necessarily deserves sympathy, empathy maybe, but yeah. not sympathy. And then of course casting Damon, who is... He's a good person. Like, yeah. he's, he's a great actor, and he's in, there's something inherently nice about him it's that midwestern thing yeah but it's the same function here that it is in the born identity where we have to believe that he is capable of these things and in the born identity films the whole point is that jason Bourne is conflicted about it mm-hmm. and here it's a skill set that he deploys whenever he has to yeah. and at the drop of a hat yeah uh the lying the the dissembling the physical stuff the the violence he's he's got a very similar toolkit but he can't be seen to enjoy deploying it, mm-hmm. even though I think, you know, like if he feels anything, he feels triumph. Yeah. And so he's kind of always waiting for a chance to do stuff. Yeah. And that's why. Yeah. No, so... And there's so, yeah, there's so much, um, you know, there's so much, there's such a great nonverbal performance. I think some of the looks, the, the kind yeah. of reaction shots of when, when things are happening that are great and, and really, like you said, allow that empathy and there is one, because I'm just thinking about exactly what you're saying, is we don't enjoy, we don't, um, you know, we don't see him enjoying it. And there's one moment, and like, spoiler, I guess we're allowed to go spoiler yeah, alert here, so. right? At okay. this point, it's presumed that people will watch the movie before listening this far. So after he kind of is trying to dispose of um, of uh, uh, Freddie Miles, who's played by uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's body... You see him kind of mock his voice, but it's shot in a way that's like we don't see his face. It's kind of over his shoulder, back. We see the body. It's it's lumpy. We don't really have the image of it, and he gets this little. It's this little moment of pleasure, um, and you know he he copies a line that that he had said earlier in the film in his voice in, uh, in Philip Seymour Hoffman's voice, and I just thought it was quite an interesting way to, to carry off what you were saying. Is like, you know even when he is enjoying it, the way that Minghella handled it was not letting us judge it too much, yeah. in, in a sense. Really, you know, playing it off his back, playing it um, so so we can't see his face. Yeah, there's a lot of... It's not quite God's eye view, but, mm-hmm. but distance yeah. in the film to 
make kind of a specimen out of him almost. Mm-hmm. It's it's. I guess. How can I put this without sounding incredibly pompous? Uh, there's so much um, space allowed in the movie to imply judgment or mm-hmm. to imply the study of the character that this really is picking him apart until we see that there's nothing inside. But Minghella's genius is that we want to keep looking even after it's clear that there's nothing to this person mm-hmm. but emptiness. There, It's not that... We need to... I get, maybe part of it is that the audience needs to invest... We believe that we need to invest in somebody who's worthy of our investment. Like, why is this guy the star of the film? Interesting, yeah. But it's fascinating to me because the movie keeps saying, no, no, look, there's really nothing here. Like, he's not a good person. He's he's a terrible person, objectively awful. By the end of the movie, why are we still hoping he'll... There's no redemption yeah. in this story. But it's so fascinating to spend that much time with someone who has no redeeming qualities except that he looks like a movie star and therefore we are supposed to pay attention to him yeah. it's a, and it's it's really an interesting choice for Damon too to, to jump into that film you know like a year and a half after Goodwill Hunting for sure I think there was you know um, it, it's a weird it's also like a, I don't know if our reaction is some sort of class commentary as well when you're seeing like sure it's an underdog story from right, one angle yeah and yeah. you know and he's we, we set him up as a, as you know live basement apartment in New York with you know struggling two jobs this guy who's who's chasing the American dream you know even even the song that they sing when they go to the cellar the Italian song is like I think it translates to like I want to be an American you know yeah. it really has that American dream and here's all these people who are who are basically second generation of the American dream? All these these you know privileged kind of we call them privileged private school kids who are off in Europe. Oh yeah, they're the Sp- future captains of industry. Yeah, exactly. Spending spending all this money, and I guess you know setting Damon's character up against them. It, it's weird that we like suddenly are rooting for like the underdog. But I don't know. I just think that that element is like subtly, maybe not so subtly, but. Um, uh, imp- impacts our, our kind of empathy towards him. Yeah, well, it's in that I'm sure Ripley would tell himself he's playing a rig game. Mm-hmm. Like he's fighting the best fight he can to get into this thing when all he really wants is... he does. I don't think that he wants privilege. I think he just wants everything. Yeah. He wants whatever's in front of him. And he works his way through people and becomes who they need him to be and all of that, but yeah, the fact that he doesn't seem to have any real motivation mm-hmm. other than not to be found out. I mean, that's the only time he ever gets exercised or agitated is when someone is about to expose him. Yeah. And or even playfully threatening is enough to seal your death warrant if you mm-hmm. if you just if you hit the wrong joke. For sure. Cuz he really you know, he doesn't discriminate. He's he's very <laughs> he's very focused. Uh, and this guy would be... That's the weird thing, right? Like, you get the feeling he would be successful in a job if he if yeah. he had an exec... If he worked his way into an executive position somehow. It's like, um, yeah, you know, it's... If they if they would have cast uh, cast Christian Bale, it could have been a prequel to American Psycho sure. in some way. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, the other person I thought of was John Hamm as Don Draper, right? Yeah. Who is... Um, Draper, at least, is self-aware in a way that's tragic. Mm-hmm. Right? The whole... The whole reason I never really got into Mad Men was because two episodes in, it's like, oh, I get it. He can sell the perfect dream, but he can't enjoy it himself. Yeah. Gotcha. Fine. And not to take anything away from the 
the actor's work, but the thesis is pretty simple. Um, Ripley doesn't even have that. Mm-hmm. He can, I think he can enjoy things, but I don't know that there's a tragedy, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's not, he's not conscious of his failings. No. No, I think the only the only tra- like the only kind of tragic element to the film for me was kind of the ending of the film when he when he gets gets away with it or we think he gets away with mm-hmm. it and he's kind of found you know um, there's this whole kind of um, homosexual undertones to the film and you, you you I think I don't think they're really undertones I think it's quite clear but oh, yeah. Um, you 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 know he's with this guy who kind of accepts him for who he is the only kind of guy and we don't you know we have to we have to kind of buy it a little bit because we don't really know why he accepts him for well for who he is but he uh, you know he has to kill him and I think it's the only time we see him crying you know yeah I just assume he's mirroring yeah like that the other person is crying so I will cry I will cry too but but it's credible yeah you you believe you also are fully aware that in that moment he is destroying what could be happiness. Yeah. That he's choosing to reject and, and, salvation. And Mengele's last shot, because I just saw the film again uh, yesterday, which I hadn't noticed until yesterday, he put the camera in a closet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is funny, you know, and, and then let the closet door shut. Is well back in the closet, I guess. But, um, yeah. you know, it's quite... And with mirrors and, you know, there's the, the whole imagery. How of that constant motif of... Yeah. You know, of people being reflected into each other and themselves mm-hmm. and, and being alone with yourself, which is, again, something I think Ripley never is. I don't think there is a self. Mm-hmm. But that's... I mean, have you seen Purple Noon? The, the I have not, no. Really fascinating, completely different treatment. Yeah. And, and it's clear... I mean, Miguel and I talked about it when he came through town at the time. Uh, he had seen it and was avoiding it. Like He didn't want to... I think he, he said he'd seen it in his younger days. Yeah. Um, and wasn't revisiting it intentionally, but also because he wanted to make a, a European film mm-hmm. in a different manner. I think he makes the subtext text in a way that René Clément didn't, because mm-hmm. in, what, 62, you just you just couldn't. You could have a lot of shirtless Alain Delon, but you mm-hmm. couldn't really go any further. And, um, I mean, it's Purple Noon's a, a terrific movie, mm-hmm. but The Talented Mr. Ripley is... Definitely a film made 35 years later. Yeah. It's just, it's got the weight of things and, and the sense that the actors are also willing to go a little further and, and dig into it. Um, yeah, Hoffman is Hoffman is definitely playing someone who is self-aware and, and queer in a way that maybe nobody else is willing to be in 1950s mm-hmm. um, America. Certainly in America, that maybe not in Europe, but like Freddie is... He's liberated by being in Europe in a way that nobody else is, mm-hmm. and so he can he can enjoy the gossip, but he can also see people clearly in a way that no one else is prepared to do. Which I think is why mm-hmm. it freaks Ripley out so much mm-hmm. in in this version that uh, that he is seen. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting. It's uh, I mean he's so great. He's so great in that film. The thing I, I have to say is I mean, uh, uh, Phil Hoffman's great in everything he does, really. So we know sure. that, but. Those scenes with him, like, and, and we know Damon's a great actor, but those scenes together, they, they hold their own. I mean, Damon completely holds his yeah, own, yeah. which is great to see. And there's so many great performances, but uh, 
but yeah, that one, that one on where he kind of barges into his room on the piano and kind of sees him clearly and kind of points it out. And it's the second time in the film he points it out. It's really, uh, it's really something. Yeah, it's tense in a way that maybe it wouldn't be willing to be with other people. Mm-hmm. With with, I mean, I think Minghella is a sensitive enough filmmaker that he would have caught it with anybody, but. Yeah, Hoffman just doesn't hold it back and just yeah. lets it out and, and, and pushes in a way that that clearly um, that Damon can play off of, but also in a way that is uncomfortable for us. Yeah. We feel voyeuristic. I think it's one of the only times in the movie that you squirm for someone's safety. For sure. Uh, because you, you just know this is the wrong decision. Yeah. <laughs> like, he thinks he's being very, very clever, and it's absolutely not the thing you do with this guy. Yeah. But everybody has that moment with uh, with Ripley. It's it's that's what's so great about Minghella is that he his treatment of it gives us the room to see like the scenes with Blanchette and Damon, the scenes with Paltrow and Damon, mm-hmm. the scenes with Lon Damon. We watch him watch them, and Minghella's genius as a director, I think, is is visually staging those scenes so that we can pay attention to both characters, but also be directed towards the responses we need to see. Sure, and everyone is oblivious of Ripley and we aren't. So we just, you know, we know to watch him by the time the scenes start, by the time the second act comes along and it starts, you know, his, his interactions start having consequences for people. Uh, We have learned that we have to watch him and see at what point he gauges threats and how he responds. It's like, it really is like watching an insect. Yeah. It's it's interesting because that shot, that, Right after he kind of comes back from San Remo after he's uh, killed uh, uh, Dicky, it's a shot of of Gwyneth Paltrow's character Marge at at her table, and it, it lingers. It lingers for quite some time, mm-hmm. and it's it's super voyeuristic. And we just kind of watch her, and you know she she gets a start, and right then, as you're saying, it's on. Now everything that happens is consequential. This reaction yeah, yeah. is consequential. Um, when we see Marge again later in the film, it, it's really, uh, it is really interesting. And, and the Marge character herself is kind of, um, you know, she, she should be the most sympathetic character in the film. I don't know if I quite feel that way, but she should be. Yeah. Her, she's the one who invites him in. She's she's um, friendliest at the start. She kind of is a part of this whole process. She's the one at the end who sees him for what he is and kind of understands the truth and is kind of written off as, as you know, the crazy, jilted lover or whatever. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just, it's just a fascinating, it's just a fascinating movie that I've watched so many, like I can watch over and over again and kind of, kind of ask questions on, and, and as a filmmaker, you're trying to figure out, you know, what is he doing? What has he done to, to make me feel this way? I think it's super important. I know, yeah. you know, these, these are other people's and I'll stick to other people's movies, but oh, no, feel free. there's an influence on, on, you know, my first film, Copenhagen, we introduced this very unlikable character at the beginning. And also, and also my, my latest film, Kodachrome, both characters are kind of unlikable at the beginning as well. And it's like, you know, how do you, how do you create that empathy? How do you create that sympathy for them? Mm-hmm. And in this film's case, he becomes, I mean, we want to like him at the mm-hmm. beginning, and he becomes less likable as it goes on, and we see exactly what he's capable of, and then, oh, no, he's capable of worse. Oh, no, still worse. He's, he's the movie is named for him, and he's in every scene, and why am I not rooting for him more? <laughs> oh, that's right, because he's a monster. 
but it, but it is um, yeah it's fascinating to reverse engineer that to experience the film and then want to go back and figure out why mm-hmm. and, and how we're we're seduced and I think it's because you know, it's part of it is the viewpoint part of it is the perspective that we're invited to share but it curdles so quickly and mm-hmm. I think you know 40 minutes in you're not you have no illusions about who this is. Mm-hmm. We know it's not going to get any better, and it's just a matter of watching what he does now. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating because we're hooked. It's a great story. You know, Patricia Highsmith knew what she was doing when she created the character, mm-hmm. and it's you know, Ripley's is, stretches out over many, many books, not just mm-hmm. the one. But there's some combination of of uh, empathy and 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 encouragement and voyeurism that Mangella hits that. You just, you need to know what he's going to do next. And it's not, there's no illusion that it's going to be positive. That Mm -hmm. it's like, bad things are coming. He's a storm. Wherever he goes, people are going to get hurt or worse. And, all right, well, let's just, we're in now. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm invested in this guy. Let's see how many people he destroys. And I also think Damon brings a vulnerability. Like, I did see Ripley's Game, which Mm -hmm. was the Malkovich... Right, yeah. Films. So it was about, what, 2004, 2005? Yeah, came for, which, you know, uh, Malkovich's take or the script's take or however they chose to go in that film was a lot more calculated in the sense of a, a lot more, um, you know, it, it completely playing chess the whole time. Right. Whereas... He's older, he's sort of figured yeah. himself out. Yeah. He knows what his strengths are. Whereas I, I did feel like, you know, Damon's... Like especially the first mur- murder, he's the way he played it. You know, he's opening himself up. He's he's setting himself up to be to be. Um, sorry, I'm tired. I can't find the no, words. Okay. <laughs> I was gonna say exposed. Exposed. Yeah. Seen. You, understood. Yeah. Under and, and you know he is in a way vulnerable, and he gets backlash for that. And his reaction is to, to commit the crime. And the the second murder that we already discussed is the same thing. He's about to be exposed. It's about to like you know, so in a like I know you can't say you sympathize with murderers, but in a way, once you spend this time, you're like, okay, I, I get it. You, you know, he kind of like right? he had to like what else could he have done? You know, he went, and you're and then and then you feel kind of feel bad for you know, and you're like, why am I exactly why am I yeah. watching this? And no, it tricks yeah. you into yeah into rationalizing with him. Like yeah. you're, by the time bad things happen it's like well I mean obviously you just don't poke him you shouldn't do that that's his fault but of course it's not it's the same thing with like the Sopranos if you like the Sopranos you know you you sympathize for this guy and then every once in a while he's just a thug and he just does nasty stuff and you kind of you're reminded a little bit I don't know I like those those kind of captivating you know there's a lot of films with very kind of altruistic characters and you just like to have cheer for the bad guy every once in a while yeah, it's true. Or, or the complicated person you know? yeah and it's not the Sopranos I think tried very hard to shock people with, mm-hmm. with Tony's violence which is weird because yeah. he is who he is and he was never going to change but with with this there's no like it's not a thriller in that way no. is it it's, it's really just more like the air going out of a balloon very slowly for two yeah. and a quarter hours you're just like oh <laughs> More, huh? yeah, but of course, right? Looking back, watching it again, it's it's really it is pleasurable to just watch the mechanics of it mm-hmm. and see how these inevitabilities are just being put in front of you, and you 
kind of hope they don't turn out that way, but no, no this isn't going to go well. And I wonder, yeah, it almost had to take place in Italy, too, or like the Mediterranean, too, right? Just yeah. the, the allure of it, the as you mentioned off the top, the, the allure of the lifestyle. Like, I mean, anyone would want to sure spend you know be spending their summers in that yeah that beautiful uh coast town i think that's a way of getting us as well on his side really early because mm-hmm. he's going on you know like he couldn't afford it himself he's going yeah. on someone else's dime uh by lying yeah. just right off the bat by presenting a false version of himself oh no no i'm i'm yeah. successful i'm i knew your i know your son maybe i can help and and that thing that that the thing that the phrase I don't think it's ever spoken in the film but it's one that always hovers at the back of my mind when I think about it is that's mighty white of you yeah like there was a point in time where just by looking like that I mean who am I kidding it happens right now it's yeah. half the Trump administration but by looking a certain way and presenting yourself at the right moment to somebody you could be of service and you buy your way in mm-hmm. and he fakes the buy-in but he kind of does deliver. Like he does yeah. everything he says he's going to do. He does find Dickie. He does deliver the father's message, and and everything else goes to hell because he decides it will be easier to just be Dickie than yeah. it is to bring him home. But the the way everything comes to him, the way everything flows so easily, speaks to this. I mean, privilege is obviously is the obvious word, but but it is this level of ease that he has in the world even before the psychopathic code switching mm-hmm. like he could he could do just fine yeah if he stayed the course but he sees things and wants them and that like that's if he has a tragic flaw it is simply that he has no self-control mm-hmm. that he'll he'll do whatever he wants to do and that's that's what makes it tragic with women that's what makes it tragic with dickie that's the, all these things he can't allow himself to express mm-hmm. become the thing that makes him become his trigger yeah. Right. It's that I think you know he would really like to kiss Dickie. I don't know that Dickie would like that back, mm-hmm. and that motivates him to simply be a better version of Dickie, yeah. right? Like a version that he is happy with. And it, it's actually interesting because this is why I like to talk about stuff. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know the the in this kind of you know Damon goes into this period where he's playing both characters and he does it quite well and he kind of transforms into Dickie, and then when he's writing the suicide note, it's like. It's exactly what you're talking about. He's writing like everything that he wanted Dickie to, you know, everything yeah, yeah, that yeah. he wanted Dickie to say to him. You're the brother I never had. You're this, you know, whatever. He kind of gets to express that. He gets to live that. He gets to feel that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and to literally write a better history. Yeah. That makes him comfortable with the things he did, right? Because if Dickie does kill himself, then he's absolved. Yeah. And it serves. A plot point, but I think what we're what we see in the performance is the wish fulfillment too, mm-hmm. like his need to have this better story. I mean, he's he's and then gaslighting he goes, yeah. people all the time, but this version he's gaslighting himself. And then he gets to go back to, you know, being him, but this version of himself that he you know that he kind of strive for at the beginning. So it's it's quite an interesting, you know, character arc that he's on. Oh yeah, <laughs> the, the way the way he manipulated it. Yeah, and you can understand how Tom Ripley as a literary character is mm-hmm. so alluring because to spend time with him in books where you don't actually have to see the horrors, where you don't have to confront yeah. them, I think it's harder to do him in film just because you have to 
you have to be in the you know like we're on the boat with him with the bloody oar. Mm-hmm. There's no way around it. If if we're going to spend time with him visually, you have to see it. Yeah. But in prose, it's more evocative. It's more you can you can linger on different things. You can choose not to see as you read, and yeah, that's I mean, again that's that's the stuff that Mingella is engaging with in his film is that no, this is a bad person. You have to watch him do these things. For sure, but the, you know, I'm thinking of the scene when at, right after he kills. Uh, Jude Law's character, you know, they go to this bird's eye view shot, and he's kind of the boat's floating in the ocean, and yeah. he's he's wrapped his arm around him, you know, and he's like getting he's trying to help, yeah, you know, and it's just like he's getting this 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 embrace that he's always wanted from this character, and he's it's a it's a fleeting moment. Obviously, he's got to go bury the body and get rid of it, and or we don't know what he's going to do. He's got to figure his, the rest of his life out. But it's like, and I think it's just these little touches that that Mingella does like that that just really um, create kind of create that empathy despite all the the kind of the harshness of it and the, the, the real kind of violence that's behind it all yeah and um, I forgot to ask you this up top uh, when did you first see it did you see it theatrically at the time I, so I saw it theatrically I was in uh, I was in university at the time and I ducked out and <laughs> went to go see it by myself um Jeez, there used to be theaters there. They're not there anymore. I forget what they were called. Whereabouts? Right on Bloor Street, like uh, just north of the university. Oh, the oh, Cumberland. Well, the, no, yeah, the Cumberland, of course. Yeah. The Cumberland. I saw it at the Cumberland. I saw it between the. I saw it in the famous player screening room between the university and the Cumberland underground. That's but funny. right there in this dinky little thirty-seat theater, which did no justice to the film at all. Yeah. I, I actually wasn't until I saw it a second time in a proper theater that I really got the sprawl of it. Yeah. I saw it and I fell in love with it. Um, I think I fell in love with Italy. I fell in love with the, the beauty and and and, uh, and didn't probably at that time didn't come out on DVD for like a year and a half or yeah, something crazy. You know, it, it used to take a lot longer than it does now. And then I, you know, bought the DVD, watched it again, just watched it every three four years. I'd watch it again. Just you know, just it it uh, just. Found, just captivated captivated me and and, and um, you know I hadn't seen it probably for I don't know eight nine years since I watched it again recently yesterday so some of the stuff was a little bit you know I still think it I think also my progression as a filmmaker I noticing stuff like I know I didn't realize like how many zooms were in the film yeah. <laughs> like like instead of like tracking shots everything was done with a zoom lens and it was you know it threw me off a little bit because I felt like it didn't really fit the the time period maybe or something yeah. I don't know that's interesting but because yeah, um, in the 50s things were pretty flat yeah when I think of Italian cinema zooms I think of like Bava and yeah. Argento really fast, fast snappy ones but uh, it works for me in the in the way that um, uh, it works for me in that scientific sort of way that, mm-hmm. that we're looking at someone under a microscope that it, it's just and I'm sure that was behavior. I'm sure that was that was the intent. I'm yeah. sure that was the intent, and it, it, it does work quite wise. I just, you know, I had something something some, you hadn't remembered, hadn't remembered exactly. And he does, he, you know, there, he definitely captures that kind of dolce vita feel, you know, in Italy, and and it's uh, there's a sense of, and I think I had just been to Italy for the first time a couple of years before the movie came out, and kind of fell in love with the country as well. Right. So, you know, I had this, these things going for me, but it was, uh, yeah, it was at that time. I saw, saw a lot of good movies. I remember. <laughs> oh, 99 was a good year. Yeah. Um, 
there's a there's a another podcast actually called Podcast Like It's 1999. Oh, cool. Uh, that uh, Philip Iscove and oh Kenny Niebart I think are going through all the movies. That is their assignment. Is they're going to go through every film released some 257 wow. movies that were released that year and Ripley they did fairly early on okay um, and it's it, it there's stuff in there that that you know that quarter that that the end of 99 we got being John Malkovich we got Fight Club in October I think mm-hmm. is the earliest one uh, and then what else uh, Magnolia and um, Three Kings and and Oh, there's one other major film, but but everybody was delivering. It yeah. was all just just big, serious art cinema. Yeah. And then 2000 and 2001, it sort of pulled back into commercial stuff. But there was this moment where, yeah, Anthony Mangello could follow the English patient with this expensive art house movie about. And that's the thing is like I don't know if this movie gets made in this way, you know. Yeah. With this ending and this kind of the way the way it doesn't. It just kind of lingers, and you know, I don't know if, it's, if these movies get made today, or if this movie gets made at this budget today. I just don't know it. Yeah, and with the cast that it had, I yes. mean, everybody in it is major. It's, I mean, obviously everybody wanted to work with Miguel, I guess, but it's, it's, you know, to say that oh, there's a movie with the biggest names, not just then but now, because mm-hmm. you know, Blanchett's only gotten bigger, yeah. and uh, and well, Hoffman, of course, didn't get to go further, but. By then, like he yeah. was, he was coming off Boogie Nights, and and he was already, and I, and Happiness the year before that. Like he Paltrow, was Paltrow just won the Oscar, yeah, for, for Shakespeare, Shakespeare in Love, yeah, and, and Matt uh, Damon, Goodwill Hunting, a few years earlier. Yeah, and Jude Law was just ascendant in a way yeah. that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, like he was suddenly everywhere, but, yeah, but this was like the big, the kind of the surprise role for him, a small character role in the middle of this larger film, even though it is exactly the same part he played in Gattaca, which I think is intentional. <laughs> Um, just cast him as the sacrifice. I mean, it's interesting because you, you know, Damon, you're casting Damon as as um, as Ripley, and he has to envy Jude Law. And it's not like Damon is just like the average Joe. You know, yeah, he's like yeah, a movie exactly. star in his own right. But it's like then you put Jude Law in front of him, and you're like, it almost had to be this kind of like Adonis. You know? Yeah, I'm trying to kind think. Of beautiful man who's you know everyone wants to be to to make that dynamic work. Yeah, I want to attribute this to Mingella. I don't know that I'm absolutely right. It might have been something I came up with, but I think he described it as you start with a quarterback and then you introduce him to a concert pianist, <laughs> and it's just like this person can do things you can't do, and you thought you were the best at what you are yeah. and maybe you are but this guy is another level of person yeah. and it had to be, yeah he said it the life had to be so alluring that you want to understand why Ripley would risk everything mm-hmm. but of course he doesn't see it that way he just sees the thing and wants it yeah but yeah no Law is he's great he's He's weird. His physicality is mm-hmm. really precise. He's he's just carrying himself in a way that suggests freedom, in a way that yeah. Ripley doesn't, because Ripley's really constricted. And and, it, and it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> again, a thing I noticed on this latest viewing is that there's a scene in the movie where um, a woman, an Italian woman, drowns herself. Uh, and you see Jude Law's character, who's this kind of like above it all kind of you know doesn't get into his emotions keeps it all like just break down and lose it over it and it 
it creates this humanity to him that we don't see in Ripley ever in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, it would almost be nice, you know, I guess it wouldn't work if Ripley got there, but it, it's just a weird thing where, like, they're kind of in, in, in that in that moment they're kind of inverse of each other and and Jude Law suddenly you know even even his ability to go there is something that Tom envies in a way you know yeah yeah that he you can't. almost want to see him try yeah but that would be the false note that gives him away yeah yeah it's it's so it's so rich in in its characterizations and it gives it has the room mm-hmm. to let I mean we've barely even talked about Blanchette and she's yeah. fantastic. She's yeah, she's um, good. Everybody in it is so good. Uh, and Paltrow too, who I mean, there was that point in the early '90s when she shows up in, um, she's in Malice and Flesh and Bone. Mm-hmm. I think in both films within the space of a few months, and you totally understand why people responded to her the way they did, why she was suddenly cast and everything, and why she was so sought after she's got this amazing presence that she then spent 15 years repressing in a weird way like becoming more serious meant giving away that spark yeah but we see it here Angela got her to bring it out yeah I mean it's it's weird and her you know in a way it's almost a similar role to very different movies but Seven this kind of supporting Mm -hmm. you know uh, well the idealist yeah and in both movies she just does a great you know job of, of really capturing it yeah of nailing she, she brings what could have been an underwritten rule to life yeah and Blanchette is doing something very different which is she's being bigger and mm-hmm. brassier and almost vulgar yeah. uh, but then we have Freddie to be truly vulgar <laughs> so it's just a great way of establishing the lines of where people are socially acceptable yeah exactly and, and, I, and I think you know Paltrow's character isn't isn't from money like the other characters are. I, I, I don't think it's or pretty, less, right? Or less. She's a, yeah, she's a less successful. Family. Less successful because I, I remember the family. The father at the beginning was kind of not happy with the woman that he met there, or something like that. Just a hint of it, and you know, kind of the more human of of all the supporting characters, the more human characters, mm-hmm. the more vulnerable character. Yeah, earthier, grounded. Yeah, grounded for sure. She seems more appreciative of the things that she has, mm-hmm. which is different in, in every way from Dickie who just you know he likes things he takes things for granted and then you get Tom who just likes things and takes them mm-hmm. it's um, it's it's a yeah she's I guess Paltrow's performance kind of suggests that she knows she's going to have to go home eventually mm-hmm. that this isn't <laughs> like this isn't her life yeah. that she's on vacation and then yeah. we see someone who just wants to be on vacation forever yeah and she can't she ultimately can't connect with that either. Yeah, that's cool. And yeah. at the end, when they take her, they have to literally be pulling her onto the boat. <laughs> you know, it's this. That's good. I don't know. Anyway, I, I mean, it's it's a. I got to go back and watch. Uh, this thing I got the most is I got to go back and watch all these '90s movies that we just <laughs> talked about and listen to this podcast. But yeah, it's great. You should listen to it. But you know, it, it is a. I don't know. Really, and I'm a filmmaker, so it's part of my responsibility. But I wish they, you know, made movies like that again. I, yeah. Something is. The lines have changed. Maybe it's the amount. You said 257 movies. I mean, that's like a month these days, yeah, it's maybe. Nothing anymore. It's also something you mentioned, like, who, how would you make it today? I think the mistake would be that someone would want to make it as a television series. That yeah. you would want to, you know, have the adventures of Tom Ripley. Con- 
to sort of, um, how can I put it? You would convince yourself that people like antiheroes, we should just follow them week to week, and that would be awful. It would just be terrible because he's like Ripley's a guy who goes years without incident. Mm-hmm. He that's the whole point that you can follow him over decades if you want to, and the idea that he would need to have adventures and constantly be coming up with things on the fly, it's that's not him. Like this, this you need the space, you need the pacing, mm-hmm. you need the slowness. That, and that's where Mingella's um, greatest asset is, is that he's content to watch mm-hmm. behavior and let the actors fill the room. And, and, you know, if every scene was a last second escape, as, yeah. you know, he leaves the hotel just as the police get there, it would be it would be exhausting, it would be frustrating, it would ultimately be unbelievable that, mm-hmm. this, that the guy's that lucky. Yeah. And... I don't. I'm. I'm also trying to, in the back of my mind to figure out who you would cast as a Tom Ripley character now, and I, I can't think of anybody. Yeah. I mean, I would like to see Channing Tatum do it, but he's hmm. too big. Like he'd be too recognizable. You need somebody who was Damon in '99 or, or, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Delon in Purple Noon is is stunningly beautiful, mm-hmm. and it works for the stylized version of the film. But if Tom Ripley is memorable, he gets yeah. caught. Yeah. So, yeah. Where do you go? Interesting. That was know. the sound of a police van slamming shut as Tom Ripley was escorted <laughs> away. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I, I, I hope they don't remake it. I really hope they don't. Some things just need to yeah, to be what they are. Yeah. And I wonder, too, if that isn't one of the strengths of the films. Because it's a period piece, it doesn't feel like a 90s movie yeah. in that way. It, the cast list is totally 90s, but there's something about it that sets it apart. It's the same way that... Um, you know, Three Kings commentary is set in, in 1990, but it could take place in the immediate present, and it still feels contemporary now, 20 years after. Um, this one set 30-odd years before, it doesn't feel, or 40-odd years before, it doesn't feel dated in the, in the slightest. No, it doesn't. No, it really... I was really happy because when I chose the movie, <laughs> I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm going to go watch it now. <laughs> you know... I, I've, I've been getting into some of these 80s, uh, you know, these movies I loved as a child that just don't hold up the way you thought they did. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this one, you know, it hasn't been that long, but I really hope it holds up. But yeah. it, it held up wonderfully. And uh, No, it's a good choice. It's um, uh, it's one that, I mean, hopefully we can get people to go watch now. But, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, it's one of those films that is so much better than I remember because yeah. there's more to discover and, and you, can, you can just lose yourself in it mm-hmm. in a few scenes and just drift along with the characters and and that's something that Miguel always had um, I mean the English patient feels a little more contrived now yeah. because that sort of grand romantic filmmaking was already out of style when mm-hmm. he did it but this one just you know it's it's almost if, if it wasn't for the beauty of it it would be an almost kitchen sink depiction of the book it's mm-hmm. just these things happen to these people in this place and uh, we are trapped with them and it's gorgeous and everybody's very pretty, but there's nothing more complicated to it, so you can just plug into it at any time. Yeah, and and I do find it. I've, I don't know how many times I've seen it now, but I do find I take you know, sign of a good movie. You know, you you get more out of it the more you watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, the looks, a, a lot of Damon's performance stuff, looks here and there, and yeah. in the bar, setting stuff up, musical choices meanings of songs stuff like that you know every it's very nuanced and I think I mean I'm fascinated as a filmmaker by this um, this idea of 
I guess it comes from advertising, but like the subliminal kind of yeah. messages, right? How do we, how do we get an audience to feel a certain way or think a certain way or react to something without being so overt and throwing it in their faces? And you know, how do we how do we subtly kind of do this? And I think this movie does it. In the, there's a lot of like like what you were talking about the zoom lenses, you know, being that feeling of being under the microscope. And I mean. You're you're obviously not a typical audience member because you've seen. <laughs> I spend a lot of time time watching movies, and you know, you, so it's it's harder and harder, and rightfully so, more critical. But I think there's a lot in there that he does, in a very subtle. Which is what directors are supposed to do, but you don't always get it. Um, yeah. To to kind of guide us and and help us and and you know started off by calling him the sympathetic sociopath. It's like how do we do that? Well, this is how we did it. You know, this is. That's, that was his job, and he completely nailed it, in my opinion. Yeah, he's laying out a blueprint for everybody to go forward, and just it's, it's interesting to see how few people really picked it up. Mm-hmm. And, and more often than not, they went with a more bombastic version um, or an unsympathetic mm-hmm. protagonist, like you know, next year's American Psycho, which I mean, they'd already Mary Heron had already made the film yeah. by the time this came out, but it's the opposite, as you say. Yeah. Like if you cast Christian Bale in this film, it's a very, very different film. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think there is a lot to learn. Uh, there is a lot to learn from this film about that you know, storytelling. Yeah. So um, is there anything to, to that end? Is there anything that you borrowed or used or absorbed and knitted into your own creative DNA? You know, I don't... I think... I think um, you kind of do this stuff by osmosis almost. You know, yeah, it's, sure. not, it's not like... But when I watch it, first time having seen it the last time I saw it I probably hadn't made my first feature film yet so watching it after the fact I can I do I can see this um, you know allowing moments uh, uh, giving performer actors moments of reflection on screen um, moments for the audience to kind of to, to place their their feelings on it or you know get in the head react as they would react so there's so much, so much of this film is just as as you mentioned earlier. Just we're kind of on Tom, seeing what he, or seeing what he sees and seeing him see it, um, being on his face. Moments of silence, and I think that's one thing that I can see in my work. That I'm now <laughs> crushing into this. I don't know if that's working from right. or other films. You know, there's um, there's certain films that I like to watch before I make a movie where you know that's similar in style. But I did I did notice that a lot, and I did think oh. You know, and and also my latest film, Kodachrome. You know, we try to deal with reflections. I would have wished wished I watched this movie as a reference beforehand, <laughs> because there's many wonderful kind of re- reflect uh, visual reflections in it. Well, I was going to ask you if the scene where Harris takes his own picture in the mirror is is a direct line, but now I'm thinking it's more about. You said this at the beginning of the, of the episode that the um, the thing you do is introduce unlikable characters and, mm-hmm. and make us like them or make mm-hmm. us see them yeah and so is that it is the introduction of someone who is you know ambiguous to us at least part mm-hmm. of it the the sense of watching someone reveal themselves slowly I mean what we get in Ripley is someone revealing himself to have nothing inside yeah and you're doing the opposite but yeah 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 I'm fascinated by that I think I think um, I don't know why I just it's just that's the journey I want to watch, right? I want I want to see someone deal with their shit and get over the hump and be able to move forward. You know, I always yeah. like to say like a film should be about the most important 
moment about in someone's life and like let's that that moment where they kind of they're able to now go and live their life you know let's give that those those days or weeks or years whatever it is mm-hmm. um so i guess that's you know i'm drawn to kind of taking these unlikable or flaw i won't call them unlikable flawed but flawed flawed characters and, and let's watch them get over the hump and hopefully you know you want to make an impression on people you make films for an audience um so hopefully someone takes something from it and is able to, you know, it's always nice to, to be able to help someone um, do that in their lives as well. Yeah. Ripley is not that kind of movie. Ripley is not. Ripley is a pure <laughs> enjoyment. Um, but I think it, it, I think it's important as a filmmaker to kind of, you know, I mean, you're a film critic and... I I don't I, I don't know how you do it because I think it's hard you know I think yeah. it's I think it's a very very difficult job but to when I watch a movie I the first question I ask myself is you know did what well, did it give me pleasure to watch it or not <laughs> you know? yeah sure and uh, when it gives you when it gives you pleasure like this film did the next question is okay why. Some some of these movies it's really easy to figure out yeah. and you can go down that road. And some movies it's a little bit more difficult. And the more you look into it, you're, the more you kind of feel and like this, like why am I liking this movie about this sociopath, psychopath, if you want to call him that, you know? Mm-hmm. And you start to question it, and and that's interesting. Those are the movies that are really interesting for me. That they do something to me that I can't really explain um, right off the bat. Yeah. No, that's. I mean, that's all anybody wants, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, ideally. Uh, you should get that from art. You should be forced to interrogate yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that dumb meme about how, what is it, something that doesn't challenge you is entertainment, something that does challenge you is art. I don't know that that's necessarily yeah. true. I can be challenged by my entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, I saw Rampage last night, and it's just fun. Yeah. Like, it's just big <laughs> monsters punching each other and Dwayne Johnson running around under the monsters. And yeah. sometimes that's all you want. Yeah. It's well executed. It's, it's fun. It's silly. It evaporated on the way home. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, sometimes that's all you need, though. Yeah, I, you know, I, you know 107 minutes of nothing with with candy. That's fine. I mm-hmm. enjoyed that. But this, you know, we're talking about the talent of Mr. Ripley, and I want to watch it again right now. That's <laughs> that's the compliment cool. there. Yeah. Cool. And uh, I'm glad you brought it up. Cool. Great. My thanks to Mark Rosso, whose new film Kodachrome drops on Netflix worldwide this Friday, April 20th. It's also opening theatrically in a 10-city release in the U.S., Los Angeles, New York, that sort of thing. And you should check it out. Thanks also to Kevin McLean. He knows what he did. You can find Mark on Twitter at Mark Rasso, all one word, and you can actually find his first feature, Copenhagen, on Netflix now as well. You can find the talented Mr. Ripley on Blu-ray and DVD from Paramount Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. And go listen to podcasts like it's 1999. It's a lot of fun. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you do that sort of thing, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. Just too darn loud.